Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have on the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as a marketing executive and the former founder of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. Welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast. Today, I am welcoming back the amazing Kira Wackett. Kira joined me during the first season of the Holistic Marketing Podcast. It was episode number five, where we discussed how to assess and define your values. Today, we're going to talk about when to know when it's time to quit. Kira is a licensed therapist, artist, public speaker, and coach that helps people create a life rooted in authenticity and connection. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and specializing in eating disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma. As a public speaker, Kira speaks on topics related to mental health, authenticity, and personal and professional development with a focus on assertive communication, shame and fear, and moving from a life of busy to fulfilled. And one of my favorite things about Kira is that I have the great honor of calling her a close and dear friend. So welcome back, Kira. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. This is the highlight of my season so far. Yay. It's going to (laughs) be such a juicy conversation. I'm excited for it. Um, But I'd love for you, if someone didn't hear the last episode, just give us a little bit of insight into kind of who you are, a little bit about your background and what you do. Yeah, so I love the sort of summation of what you give to everybody, kind of the overview. Essentially, I got my master's degree in counseling psychology with the intention of really creating a professional platform to help as many people as I could to work through some of the pain points and the topics that unfortunately were not really taught about in sort of general education. So things like what does forgiveness really mean versus what are we taught on full house? What is shame? What is what is a communication style? And what does it mean to communicate assertively? How do we live in that? How do we find our confidence? And so I have done a lot of work in the therapy room. I love therapy. I love being able to help people through these really painful, vulnerable experience. I also do a lot of work outside of the therapy room in the speaking sector, the coaching sector. I would say right now I'm feeling a lot more called to small group work. So I do a lot of different deep dive sessions. I just started a book club program, launching really deep into different topics. Essentially, everything that I see as an extension, wanting to come back to that value of really empowering people to develop those skills and live within their own selves and to live in that confidence of who they are and bring that into the world. And that's such a beautiful thing. And <laughs> I love that you are here in the world to do that. I think it's so important. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about this offline, but we are in year two of a global pandemic, which has obviously drastically changed the world all at once. Every single individual on this planet has felt it to some varying degree And you and I have both made a lot of changes, not necessarily in reaction to the pandemic, but in the exploration that we were given during that time. And I think one of the questions we both kind of wrestled with a little bit is, you know, how do I want to show up in the world that, you know, has changed? 
but change can be really hard. And I kind of want to ask you this question around why is change so hard, yet it's inevitable? (laughs) I love this. I love when we started to explore this topic too, just thinking about I think one thing that is really important if we're going to do hard things is to create a sense of what I call flexible grace. So really being able to show up with ourselves and understand the difficulties, the nuances of the experiences that we have. And I think change is something that is sometimes chosen, oftentimes forced upon us in different ways, as is the case in this pandemic, and really having to adjust radically the lives that we live. But in reality, change is something that's pretty overwhelming for the brain. So while the brain is incredibly complex and it does so many things that we don't even understand yet what they are, the brain is also very systematic and really likes predictability. So wanting to know, I get up, I do this same thing every day. This is the outcome. This is what's going to happen. I might not love my life. It might just be a fine life, but I know how to exist in it. And that predictability is more comforting and more sought after from the brain than constantly waking up and trying new things or that constant change and evolution of what our daily life looks like. That's why when you get your route to work, you drive the same route over and over again. You don't wake up and go, hmm, I want to try a new route today, or I'm just going to wing it and see what happens if I turn left instead of going straight. We want those patterns. We want that predictability. And so when change comes upon us, like in the pandemic, It's not even just one change. It's the domino effect of all of the changes that happen by the world shutting down, by the fear that's brought to us. And what happens is this back part of our brain, this fear response, it's where a lot of times people will call it their reptilian brain or their old brain, but it's essentially like Pong like the old, old, old computer games, or maybe that was an actual video game. I don't even know. I just remember the game and I remember playing it with the weird ball and it's, you know, the black screen and green lights. That's kind of how that system functions. It's even more simplified and its sole purpose is to react when there's a threat to our existence and our life. And change, because the outcome can't be predicted, is perceived as a threat. So when everything happened, when the pandemic happened, the force changed, then layered with these invitations for change, like we'll get into throughout this conversation, I'm sure, all of that basically activated the brain's fear system to say, this is too much, something could happen, we need to retreat, come back. And that's part of that then overwhelm and saying, what can I do to minimize or to avoid making change as much as possible? The saying this isn't really a big deal, the trying to pretend like everything is fine, the I'm going to make this the best two-week vacation I ever had, not knowing that this was going to be you know, two years instead of two weeks, and trying to negotiate with and minimize making those long-term and bigger changes. Oh my gosh, there's so much there. And I think <laughs> you really hit on just this the way our brains work. And I think sometimes we try to willpower things in our lives or don't want to respond a certain way. But I mean, there is a lot that we don't know about a brain, but there's a lot we do know. And I think that is really key is thinking about our brain is kind of always scanning for what it knows, what's it's familiar to it. And that brings the comfort 
and the less of this need to be in survival mode. Like you said, it kind of becomes a threat when change is present. Mm-hmm. And so we do move into that fear response, that survival mode. And so we all have moments of that along life anyways, or different things that may happen day to day. But I'm curious, are there any like research on sort of the long-term effects of being in that heightened survival state? I know that's kind of also a stress response as well, which can also lead to a lot of disease and um, unbalance in the body. But I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, if you know what happens, like what are we really shifting in our brains if we constantly stay in this like survival threat mode? Yeah. So I love this question. And I like the articulation of we really face these changes on a daily basis. And they could be as small as going to a restaurant and ordering something new. They could be as big as deciding to leave your job or being asked to leave or kind of pushed out of your job, which I know happened to a lot of people during the pandemic and everything in between and even on deeper ends of the spectrum and kind of more extremes. So when this is happening, if you can imagine, if anybody remembers I think it was probably in our bio classes, maybe an anatomy class, but I remember learning in high school about activation energies for neurons and communication. And I don't know why this graph has stuck with me for so long, but if you think about it, if you're kind of looking at it, there is kind of a baseline level of where our neurons exist. So think of a vibrational energy. So they're kind of at whatever this status quo point is. That's where they like to be. That's where they like to hang out. They're not really doing anything. They're just chilling there. Then there's something called activation energy. What that means is if you want me to do something, you're going to have to put in enough energy, raise the bar, get me activated to a point that I reach a threshold that I'm going to go do my job. So there's now to be enough of a push, enough of a drive to do that. So if you can picture it for any of you that are visual, what will happen is you'll see an increase in the graph, kind of a, a climbing up the mountain. And that's when you're starting to work towards this activation energy point. Well, when you get to whatever that magic number is, what happens is a huge cascade of response. Then the neurons go, okay, I'm going to go do whatever you need me to do. And then they go off and they go communicate to other neurons. They activate whatever systems, protocols, responses, whatever the brain is needing to do in response to whatever's going on. Well, when that happens, a ton of energy is expended. And what you see is actually a huge dip where it drops kind of a drastic plummet down the hill, but even lower than where those neurons were initially in their nice resting phase. In a normal set of circumstances, those neurons can come back up, have kind of what, I don't remember what it's actually called, but it's like a relaxation period, kind of a recharging time, where when you reach that bottom point, there's kind of a period where they slowly migrate back up to that chill state, that state that they like to be at. So that's ideal. What happens when our brain is in a constant state of activity, it means the neurons are firing all the time and at constant interaction points. So all the neurons are firing, everything is going on, your brain is constantly in that state of survival mode or threat mode, meaning that your brain is going, this could be a fear response, this is something bad, what about this, what about this? And we all experienced that to some degree when the pandemic hit. So there was the initial fears, but the domino effects of the fears, the what ifs, the trying on different outcomes that all felt scary, all of that got our fear brain going over and over and over again. And what starts to happen is we don't get that necessary kind of recovery period. So the 
neurons or the brain can't come back up to a baseline that is consistent with what they need and getting to that good level. Instead, they just start operating at this really high point consistently. They never get to come down and rest. They never get to recharge. So over time, basically the brain just operates in this survival mode or this threat mode until it crashes. And if you've seen that, if somebody is in a really, after a major trauma or after a major fear incident, their brain will kind of go, 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 and then they'll crash. Maybe they get sick. Maybe they sleep for days, you know, 10, 12 hours a night for days on end, whatever it might be. But the brain will basically do kind of like an automatic shut off and bring everything to a halt because we can't function at that level anymore without complete and absolute burnout. So I know it's really hard without an actual image to show people. I can do a little a drawing that we could add into the notes afterwards. But tell me, based on what I'm saying, tell me what you're seeing and kind of how we could expand on that to make sure that that fits and makes sense as well. No, I think you illustrated that perfectly. I could totally visualize it. And I do remember studying that before at various <laughs> different times, like in school. And then more recently, as I have gotten more into like how the brain works and our response mm-hmm. to it, I guess... What I find is so fascinating, maybe fascinating is not the right word, but this idea that, you know, I feel like personally, I haven't had this time to come down and sort of recalibrate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do feel like I've been firing constantly. I mean, there hasn't been like a major crash other than like crying into my pillow once in a while. But (laughs) um, I think it's just interesting. Like, I definitely feel like I'm in a state of like burnout and overwhelm and like we were talking about before, like we all experience kind of these threats or shifts in our day-to-day lives that our brain is supposed to be going up to deal with and then coming back down. But now I feel like all of that is happening under the umbrella of this pandemic, which just keeps that baseline even higher. And so I'm kind of curious, do you have any like tools or techniques for helping to just like navigate that? I mean, my gut response is to like, just take more time for myself, but I also noticed that that pre-pandemic would help recharge me where now it almost feels like it's another thing to do or I don't feel as like relaxed and recentered as I would have been pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that's really important to point out before I give maybe some tools and response plans for people is that we are a culture that is founded on the idea of being logic, thinking, production-oriented people who occasionally have feelings, but only if they're convenient to the work plan and the things that we need to do. Otherwise, we Mm -hmm. stuff them down. Versus what we really are as a species, which is a feeling species that also has thoughts. So these high-level thoughts, the productivity, the logic, the cognitive aspect somehow has superseded ourselves as emotional beings. And that sort of emotion and that experience of our feelings, I also mean in terms of our connection with our bodies. 
So we have completely shifted away from having a relationship with our body. That's why most of us, if not every single person listening to this, can relate to at least a period of time in their life or probably a constant time in their life where they have had some sort of body image distress. We see the body as failing us. It's letting us down based on its weight, shape, appearance, what it can or can't do. We don't work with the body. And in fact, we oftentimes tell the body it's like an annoying accessory. You're getting in my way. Why are you tired? Why are you achy? Why can't you do this? Why can't you stand up? So there's this disconnect that happens there where we try to over control our body by logicking ourselves out of having any type of physical feeling. We also do this with emotions. So we try to put emotions in a box. We actually had a coaching client yesterday who we were talking a lot about grief and forgiveness. And this pretty traumatic thing happened to her at work that was kind of the pivotal experience of her shame coming to a head and seeing how her shame narrative had gotten reinforced through this and now feeling pretty stuck in all that. And at the end of telling me all this, she goes, but I'm fine. It's fine now. I got through it. It's okay. I said, oh, really? So in 48 hours, you've experienced all of your grief. You've gone through all of those emotions. You've let your body feel like it needs to feel sad, angry, frustrated, the tightness, the the tiredness, all of these things, you've gone through that and it feels like it's complete or does it feel like it would be more convenient if it was done and you were, quote, fine? And so I think that is part of the issue of why not only is change hard, but why getting out of this sort of hypervigilant state is difficult is because we don't make space for and connect with our emotions and our physical state of self. And I think in reality, it's because one, we think it's going to get in the way and two, we don't trust it. We don't trust, well, if I start crying, I'm never going to stop. If I take time away, then I'm never going to get these things done. If I rest, then I'm not going to be as productive as I need to be to prove myself in my job that I'm already worried that I'm going to let go of. And I'm lucky that I still have a job and we go down the rabbit hole. So we condition ourselves back out of listening to these things that are right in front of us. So I think to get to your question, I don't think that I can give people tools until they're willing to sit in and kind of do that hard part. And willingness suggests a degree of, I think, onus and responsibility. And unfortunately, that responsibility has to be something that we're willing to take because we don't exist in a culture that's suddenly going to say, you know what? You're right. This whole American dream, get to the top, everybody get on top of everybody. This is dumb. Let's just go back to everybody just taking time for themselves and being kind. That won't happen. So we have to say, I'm not okay with this life. I am not okay with these things. I'm going to feel tension by stepping back from doing some of this stuff. And if I don't, I'm already getting privy to kind of seeing what these outcomes are going to be, and they're only going to get worse over time if I don't do these things now. I know that wasn't a total answer to your question yet, and I'll definitely go through some tools. I just want to pause because I know I said a lot here to see if that's pulling anything else for you too. No, I think that was an amazing kind of pullback because you're right. There's so much of that willingness to just feel and to stop and to take a breath. And that can also feel just as scary because like you said, we're in this like society that it's all about being productive, keep moving forward, you know, put your emotions in a box. And when you were describing the 
American dream and the world we wish it could be like, I'm like, where do I sign up for that world? Like, <laughs> I want to be there. Um, but yeah, I think it's so true. It's, it is that willingness to just pause and to take a breath. Well, and I think even to say, because I think everybody has this feeling of it, and you and I have both struggled with this in different ways. And I know we've had conversations where I myself have had to address that narrative of feeling like I have to do it all, all the time. And not stopping to say, but do I want to? And at what cost? And I think those are the things we have to be willing to sit with and answer those questions. And in the whole context of then these invitations to let things go, these invitations to make the changes, the invitations to move forward, so much of this also lies in then letting go of the pain we've been holding on to, letting go of the shame and the pressure that we have to act and be a certain way, that work is what frees us up to then say, I don't want to do this job anymore, or I don't want to have kids, or I don't want to be in this relationship anymore, or I'm ready to leave social media. Whatever these things are, these changes, these shifts that we'd want to make, the actual doing, the behavioral activation is way easier once we do that work on the forefront of saying, what's all the, the mucky stuff in the water that we want to pretend isn't there? And it would be so much more convenient if we didn't have to deal with it. But if we don't deal with it, we're never actually going to, quote unquote, change. We're just shifting to a new shame-based response pattern. We're shifting into something else that's just going to become another way that we continually beat ourselves down into the ground, overexpend our, our resources, our energy, our time to try to make up for these deficits that we believe about ourselves in this shame-based narrative. Oh my gosh. Like there were some gold nuggets in there. <laughs> I think, you know, when you were talking about, you know, do I want to do this and at what cost? I think that's a phrase like we can think about the first part of that. And I think you can kind of like go round and round in your heads about like, do I want it? But there's like, here's the pros and the cons. But then it's like, when you ask that question at what cost, I think that really kind of runs it home and makes it, it kind of forces you to look at that murky water and to be like, okay, what's really in here. And I have found, and especially in my own transition from closing my business to going back to work, like I wrestled with that pre-pandemic. I mean, the pandemic, I think, was a little bit of a catalyst for me to really sit with that muddy water. And once I identified what it was in there and pointed at it and was like, oh yeah, I don't want to do this anymore because it is costing me too much in all sorts of resources. And when I called it out, it didn't feel like that big of a deal. It was like, oh, okay, that's what it is. But it was like this thing I kept fighting up against. And once I just kind of did stop and really put a name to what it was and like say it out loud. It was like this instant wash of like relief of like, oh, I can make a choice here. I can change to pivot. I can change to do something different and it's okay. And then, you know, then it did become moving into those behavioral patterns. And then it's like, okay, I need to get my resume together. I need to, you know, connect with my network and start applying for jobs and like think about what I really want in that next role. And that I think is so and powerful in the sense of the pandemic gave me that invitation to really sit back and look at that muddy water, let's keep calling it, um, 
And I know not everyone had that same experience or that same opportunity when the pandemic hit, but I do think, you know, coming back to this invitation to review and look at what's in front of you that you may have just been resisting against that whole time, like resistance can be a very telling story if you're willing to turn into it. And I find that to be really powerful. Well, and I wonder for you, and and maybe that's, you've gotten really clear, I think, on this in your own decision-making. But the choice that was scary was not, do I want to leave my business or do I want to close the doors to my business and go back into and work for someone else in the workforce? That decision was the easy decision. It was wrestling with all the fear you had and all the what-ifs and the concerns about making each of those decisions. And so... When that was going on for you, what do you remember being the fears? What was your fear brain doing? We go back to kind of that image again. What was that hypervigilance response? Why was your brain afraid to honor what you wanted? Yeah, I there were so many things that I think were coming up. One, I think, was a fear of ending up in like a toxic work environment. I had not, prior to having my business, had the most... Um, welcoming and loving working places, we'll say, mm-hmm. um, or even just like committed to supporting employees, like definitely everything leaned pretty toxic. So I was terrified of that, um, of landing somewhere again, that was going to be that environment. And I think the other part of it is like the fear of losing part of my identity, which I know wasn't true, but it, I was so ingrained and defined of being an entrepreneur. I like networked, Mm -hmm. you know, with tons of entrepreneurs and, you know, I was in peer groups of entrepreneurs. So like I was so ingrained in that community and it had become such a part of my identity. So part of me felt like, am I giving up a part of myself to do this? And logically I knew that wasn't the case, but again, your brain kind of has to like catch up and it has to understand that it's not a threat, which does take time, but it was amazing. Like once I said it out loud to other entrepreneurs, like no one questioned it. Everyone's like, oh man, I get it. Like no one questioned it. No one was like, are you sure you don't want to do that? Like, are you sure you should just try a little bit harder? Like no one had that response, which I was afraid everyone was going to have that response. Everyone was like, good for you. Like, that's amazing. And so once I heard that once or twice and I knew it was like, oh, I'm totally fine. And it's not a part of my identity it's something I did for a while and I love it and enjoy it. And I'm still a part of that community and it doesn't have to be this either or decision as well. It's not like I'm not losing all of these things. It's just, they're going to like engage with my life slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Which I think what you're pointing out then is so some of that fear of things that are in our control and fear of things that are out of our control. And so even to go back to your question before of what are some things that people can do when they're feeling this overwhelm, a lot of times what I think is helpful is to, again, really come back and to connect with the body, connect to your emotions, acknowledging and getting curious about your fears to say, okay, so what is everything I'm afraid of? The reality is you could have ended up in another workplace that was toxic that is out of your control to many degrees. Obviously, there's some upfront work maybe you can do to get to know people or things like that, but it does ultimately land outside of your control. What's in your control is to know that you don't have to stay there and to give yourself that permission to say, well, that would really, really suck if I left my job or or left my business to go to a job 
that then became another reinforcer of this kind of toxic environment that I'm scared of. And I've left those environments before I can leave them again. And that's the shift into the fear brain that says, hey, if that thing happens, we have the skills and tools to deal with it. And that's what helps you build a better relationship with your fear rather than trying to stuff it away and pretend like everything is fine and or to try to over control it. Because if we get curious about it, we say, well, man, my fear brain really wants to protect me from being in another place in space where something like that could happen. In reality, I can't control that so much, but I can control the way that I'm showing up in my life and what I want to do. And I also know I've had toxic relationships and people I've interacted with, even in owning my own business. So that doesn't mean that it is, I'm protected from that in any way. It just means I'm scared of experiencing it in this certain platform again. And we could go deeper and deeper into each one of the different fears that you outlined, but I think you know, really getting clear on that and then also getting clear on how many of those fears connect to what other people think. And so when we talk about our identity, when we talk about even if every single person you talk to said, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Really? What about this? What about this? You still have the right to say, yes, I am sure. And and I think you did, having been privy to part of that process with you, you did do a lot of that internal work of saying, this is what's right for me. And I think that comes down to getting clear on this idea of if something is not a a wholehearted, a whole body, a whole experience, yes, or I've called it a hell yes in the past, it has to be a no. Well, it's easy if those no's are obvious. It's easy if somebody isn't, you know, giving me a job opportunity to work in an inpatient treatment facility, working with people with substance use issues where it's not my area of expertise. It's not the focal point of what I want to do. The energy demand is not what I want to give. That's an easy no. But someone saying, hey, do you want to do this talk on this one thing? It's only an hour talk where I'm not really sure I want to do it. The pay night might not be that great. But it's easier to talk myself into doing those things because I'm like, ah, oh, it won't be that bad. It's not going to be that big of a deal. And so I think that's the other thing is noticing for ourselves, it was very clear to you once you were honest with yourself, leaving and closing your business was a hell yes. But you had to kind of sort through some of those things and then also be okay with Again, what if people do think that's a cop out? What if people think you should have done something different or they think less of you that ultimately couldn't supersede how you felt about your own life? Because that is what ultimately leads to that overwhelm and that burnout is trying to be something you're not to appease other people because it just reinforces that you alone are not enough. Mm. Yes. So relatable. Yeah. And I think I should also mention too, in like my transition, I mean, I did sit like once I called out that this is a decision I want to make. I mean, there was multiple months of just sitting with what does that yeah. feel like? What does it look like before any of the action to really like start applying for jobs, which then was a six month journey. So like, right. It's not just like you make the decision and then, you know, you start interviewing and get a job. Like it was right. definitely an eight, 10 month process of definitely sitting with those emotions you know, thinking through the fear and like what was real, what wasn't real and knowing that I was going to be able to handle whatever did come. And there was a lot of prep too. Like you said, like there's certain things you control, certain things you can't control, but I really sat with what does a toxic work environment look like? What does the opposite look like? 
Right. And what are some of the questions that I can ask in an interview question, you know, process to kind of suss out, like, what is that environment really like, look like, you know, how can you find the right resources online from current or previous employees or talk to people that work there? I mean, there's definitely a lot of things you can do. I mean, you never know until you really get there, but I do think with a gut check and being connected to even how your body feels during the interviews, I think, again, coming back to your body connection you are going to get the information that you need to make the best decision for yourself. Well, and how much during that eight to 10 months time did your fear brain try to push you back into what if this doesn't work out? Maybe this isn't the right thing. And having to really, and I'm assuming it got easier over time, but probably wavered of like, no, this is the right choice. But the more time that it doesn't quote unquote work out right away, the more fear we have around, well, then what if it never works out? What if something doesn't happen? What if you don't get a job that you like? Do you, you know, should you just say yes to the next job that's available? And those, I think, experiences are things that they're all invitations to go back into that state of fear to try to protect the brain because your brain so far doesn't trust that you will be okay in this state of unknowing, in this state of kind of waiting. And there has to be a certain degree of willingness to sit in that distress. And I think you're describing having to do a lot of work to get to that point. And having done that upfront work to be clear on the choice you were making makes it a little bit easier, although not comfortable, to be willing to tolerate that distress for longer, knowing that you've made this decision, you've consulted all these aspects of self, and that ultimately you're willing to trust in this process to get to this other point, because all that lies you back in that sort of predictability, the non-changed frame of living is what makes you feel unfulfilled and unhappy, and what ultimately is burning you out even more so than this kind of waiting process. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, no, I wrestled with that so many times. I think at like the four month mark into interviewing and applying for jobs, I had a moment of just like, I don't know if this is going to work out. Like I had a really hard time trusting the process and was in distress because I didn't feel like there was anything really happening in the right direction. I was starting to get more client projects. So I was like straddling these two worlds and I was like, maybe I did give up too soon. And like you do start to kind of question it. And again, I think your brain goes back to like what it knows, what's comfortable. And even though I wasn't like comfortable in my business, I did feel like, you know, that's what I've been doing for so long. So like, maybe I should keep doing it. And so there was kind of that moment where I had to pause, regroup and like reconnect to like why I was doing it, like what I really wanted this next phase of my life to look like. And I think when you're able to kind of really focus on what that means for you, that helped me kind of push through that distress. But there was definitely like little moments of distress and big moments of distress that came up through that process. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to kind of discuss the role of shame a little bit more in this. I know shame is a topic you talk a lot about um, and understand. And I'm curious kind of what role does that play along with you know, maybe fears of change or layers of the change that we go through. Yeah. So I think kind of giving people a little bit more of an overview, if people have followed, I think especially after Brene Brown's TED Talks kind of blew up and then other people in the research world and the therapy world started to kind of get more into this term, this concept, shame's kind of taken a lot more of a front seat in the way we talk about and think about things. But 
just to give people kind of a general overview, shame is essentially this, it's an emotion. It is a feeling of threat to connection and belonging. And if we back up before I actually bring it into our story, I want to talk first about what's called our core beliefs. And so when we're born, we all develop a belief about ourselves and our place in this world. And for maybe 0.0% of the population, that belief is that I am worthy and lovable simply by being human. All the rest of us developed a belief system of I'm only worthy, I'm only lovable, I'm only enough if, fill in the blank. If you wear certain clothes, have a certain body type, have act a certain way, dress a certain way, whatever these things are, we need to do them and be these people in order to be, to make up for our inherent deficiencies as a human. Well, that starts to develop rules and systems of operation in the world. So this is what we have to do for other people to perceive us as worthy, lovable, and enough. Now, layered into this is where shame comes in. Because what we know now is that connection is necessary for survival. It's not optional. We need to have connection. We need to feel belonging in order to survive. Our brain needs that. So shame basically comes hand in hand with our core beliefs. And it says, okay, I'm going to work for you and tell you every time there's a threat to your value, worth, or belonging. I'm going to help you because look, we get it. You're inherently effed up. We got to follow these rules to make everything okay. I will alert you when you are not doing meeting all these expectations. So it thinks it's being helpful. And it's this, again, this response, it's this activation in the body. Well, the system that it uses to get you to kind of be on alert or to be aware of this is the fear system. So basically shame and anxiety or shame and fear go hand in hand with each other. So shame's, you know, around when you have this interaction with somebody, you go to an event, you're talking to someone. And then you say something and you watch their face and you go, oh, I can't read that. What are they thinking? Did, they, did I mess up? Did I say the wrong thing? And then shame comes in and goes, boom, you didn't follow the rules. You did this. You are the problem. You messed up in some way. You got to make this right or they're going to see you as not belonging here. Maybe you have an interaction with somebody at work and they're in a bad mood. Well, you can't totally figure out why. And shame's default is going to be, well, remember, you're the broken one. So you're the problem. So shame comes into that interaction and it tells you, nope, you got to make sure that you make this better. So take on this project, do these things, make sure you take extra responsibility to make up for whatever is going on here at work. And this shows up in all these other interactions. And this is where I kind of think the driving force for needing to do and be it all comes from. And so I can say for myself personally, I had my daughter two weeks before the world shut down and really trying to grapple with what does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to run my own business? What does it mean to have a partner that works in emergency medicine and navigating what it looks like to support someone that's in such a state of existence during this pandemic? What does it mean to have my therapy practice and have patients and this pressure that comes from shame is basically, well, you better be perfect in all of these things because you can't afford to drop any balls. So as much as I can tell you logically, I hate the chase for perfection, shame leaves no room for error. And so everyone else can be imperfect. I can show grace to these people. I can be kind. I can literally build a business off of empowering people to let go of that need to be perfect while giving myself no room for error. So I have to be the perfect parent, the perfect partner, the perfect therapist, the perfect business owner, the perfect 
X, Y, and Z. Well, over time, it's unreasonable to expect we can meet these expectations and meet them consistently, especially. And so the more that we kind of reach those tension points, the more that we quote unquote fail by not meeting the expectations, the larger our shame response starts to mount and we just start to feel this heaviness. We start to collect more and more data. It's even more, it's kind of like that red car bias. If you buy a red car and then suddenly you notice all the red cars. Well, now we're going to notice every possible thing that we could be doing or could be happening that leads to us again being the problem. And then all we do is we start to collect evidence and build our story of all the ways we're failing and flailing, but we work actively to try to make people not see it, which is why it's this okay, I'm becoming less and less and less okay. I'm less, people are going to find out. I feel like everything is falling apart, but I better perfect my performance because if anybody finds out, I'll lose it all. Wow. I find that to be so relatable and you can see it every day (laughs) in different ways of the way that people operate. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if someone is aware or maybe becomes self-aware that they are doing that? Um, And how do they kind of invite themselves to take a step back and like give them themselves room for air or maybe to like take a break? Like you don't have to do everything consistently all the time. Like how do you kind of start to quell your brain or calm your brain into understanding that it's okay to be like this and it's also okay to essentially take rest Yeah. So I think the hard part is shame starts to kind of be like if everybody imagines having a pair of glasses that they're wearing, shame becomes a tint on the lenses. So it's really, really difficult to just clean it off. It's kind of with us all the time until we get a new pair of glasses. But you got to save the money. You got to make an appointment. Let's pretend it's like making a DMV appointment right now for anybody that's at least in Oregon. But I'm assuming this is all over the place where I think, you know, we were talking about this offline of it took over a year for you to get an appointment. So imagine that. It's like, okay, I got to figure out what I want. I got to save the money for it. And I got to get an appointment. It takes a lot of time for us to ready ourselves for a new pair of glasses. Part of the reason why that is the case is because, again, Shame introduced itself as a tool or a support to help us get this basic need of connection. So getting rid of and dismantling shame, there's a certain degree of distress tolerance that we have to have of saying, so maybe I don't have to do all these things and people might still want to be around. Maybe. Maybe I don't have to be everything and someone might still choose me. And we talked about this a little bit because I have very few relationships in my life, in particular friendships, where I'm not essentially their ad hoc therapist, and I'm the one that pretty much shares nothing, but I'm always there for them. Because that's what I've told myself. That was the storyline. You have to do everything for everybody. You have to be there anytime they need something. You have to always be willing to listen, to help out however you can, and you have to not really need for anything. Well, our relationship, when we started out as friends, you were constantly giving me invitations to not be that person. And it was so uncomfortable for me. I remember even after we talked about me being pregnant with Everly and you treating me to lunch, I spent weeks grappling with the shame around you doing something nice for me and me me now having to make it right. 
because it's more comfortable for my brain if I don't owe anybody anything. If that, what if that was used against me of, well, I bought you lunch and now you have to do this, this, and this. Or what if I'm perceived as taking advantage of you or things aren't fair or things aren't equal? And our brain can go in a million different directions of what ifs that can make us the villain, can make us the victim, can make us needing to be in a position of a hero in order to make up for these things. And that's just a small example of you doing a kindness of saying, I want to treat you to lunch. This is so exciting to be welcoming this child into your life. Well, if you imagine this kind of all the time for all of us, when we have that shame activation, it's really hard to even notice your shame is the one telling you, you need to buy lunch next time. You need to make sure that she knows how grateful you are. You need to overextend to make up for this kindness because the the transaction isn't square. And it takes a lot to realize that that is your shame, but maybe that's not the only way to think about it. So I had to then kind of let go of control and say, I need to trust that this is not about me owing her, that this is about somebody wanting to do something nice because it's important for them. I don't have to see it as a trick or a, a test of my character or as whatever, again, my shame narrative might say. But that takes a lot of time. And so what I often tell people is to start off just by whenever something happens and you experience flooding is technically a trauma term. So I don't love using it in this context, but the experience of having your brain flood with thoughts is something people relate to. And it's been used a lot kind of in public settings. We'll talk about just kind of the the idea of your thoughts flooding in or racing in. So if after an interaction, after even let's say you get to the end of the day and you look at your to-do list and you didn't get everything done and you notice all the thoughts that come in, just starting by getting curious about what are all those thoughts? What am I telling myself right now? What do I tell myself after I leave this interaction? What am I telling myself at the end of each day? What am I waking up telling myself about how I'm already failing by not being up and doing X, Y, Z? Or what do I tell myself when, and you just kind of keep filling in those blanks. And the goal there is to just get really curious about how you are communicating with yourself offline and how then is that maybe rooted to a shame-based narrative that says, hey, you have a deficit, you have to make up for it. And then once we get curious about that, once we really start to build the insight into where that comes from, so what early experiences enforce that? What, What times have you seen this to be true? So then you're again kind of, building more of a case that you have to do it, once we get clear on all those things, then we can slowly dismantle the system. But you have to be willing to sit in it long enough to get very clear on what is this full system? What is happening here? And I pers- I mean, I'm partial. Obviously, I love therapy. I love coaching. I don't know if I myself could have done all of that without having other people to talk to about it. Because the only person that knows my shame narrative is me, because I'm the one living it all the time. Everyone else can see a world that doesn't have to relate to that. So when I talk to my therapist, when I've talked to coaches, when I've talked to friends and they go, yeah, I wasn't thinking that, or that seems interesting. What about this interpretation? Or have you thought maybe that's you know X, Y, and Z? That introduction of new possibilities allows me to start to see it more as shame. I don't know if it actually is answering your question, but I think 
there's such so many layers to it and there's no quick fix or quick answers. But I think just getting curious first to just start to learn about the narrative before we try to do something about it is really the best and most helpful and probably the most distressing step we can take to really kind of work on dismantling the system. Yeah, no, I thought that was a beautiful answer. I think shame is very layered and connected to so many different aspects of who we are. And I don't think you've ever told me that story fully. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh my goodness. No, you don't owe me anything. Um, But I think, you know, what I love about our friendship too, is I think we've had a lot of conversations around that too. And about like expectations or like, you know, I think maybe you've asked me if you want, if I need something in return, I'm like, no, it's totally fine. Like in Mm -hmm. other aspects. And so I think one of the things I was hearing you say around shame, it comes back to this piece of connection and belonging. And I think, again, it's one of those things, like if you can say it out loud or address it or ask questions or have a therapist or have a coach that you can work through these things with, Mm -hmm. they can help pull you out of all of those thoughts and just kind of take more of an objective look to say, huh, that might not be true. This could be true. And it allows you to kind of expand into possibilities versus going down into this shame spiral of I'm not good enough. This person doesn't want me. They don't love me. I'm not good enough. My body's not good enough. I mean, there's so many times that we can spiral into that pretty quickly. Well, and even to then kind of circle this back to your original questions around change, the shame-based narrative is not comfortable. I don't think anybody listening to this that can recognize, oh, I do this goes, and I love it. I want to live like this for the rest of my life. This is amazing. But it's predictable and it's safe because in a weird way, it's an attempt to over-control the narrative. If I'm the problem, if I'm the victim, and if I have to be the solution, then I'm in control of all of it. And so there's a comfort, a weird comfort that we develop in that. And so this shift, that's why I think starting with just asking yourself, what are those thoughts? What is the narrative you live in before we do anything about it? The reason that's more accessible for our brain, even though it's uncomfortable, is the actual switch out of that, the switch away from the shame-based thinking is one of the hardest changes you're going to make. So when you do that, when I say, huh, interesting thought. Maybe that's not true. And then you just try to allow that to be a possibility. That is a major change in the brain. So the first time I did that, now we've been friends long enough that I've gone through this whole process in our relationship. The first time that I did that, didn't believe it. Definitely threw it out right away. was like, nope, you suck. You owe something more. Well, over time, I have learned we can have a phone call and it can purely be a need for me And that's okay because I trust the fact that our relationship is built on really both of us wanting to show up for each other, that it isn't about me needing to owe you something. The next time a thought comes in, it's easier and easier and easier to try that on and to start to see it as your new reality. But it's like the first time you take a new route to work. That change from driving the route you've done all the time where you get there and you go, did I even stop at the stop sign? The first time you drive the new route is going to feel a little bit scary, a little bit overwhelming. You're going to be a little uncomfortable when you do it. Well, the more you take that route, the more you force yourself along that way, the easier that wiring is going to kind of come together in the brain and the easier that's going to be for you to start to assume that is your reality. And that's where 
these kind of micro shifts kind of shifting into that route or that side. It's not like, well, do this one thing and everything's going to be great. It's be consistent, show up, put the work in every day. And eventually you're going to wake up and go, wait a minute, when did the switch happen? But suddenly you feel relief because your brain has decided and built up enough evidence that it doesn't have to be afraid of the change anymore. In fact, it can be freed by this change. Yes. I think you circled our conversation back to the beginning so well there too. I mean, I think change is incredibly hard, but when you're able to kind of give yourself the time and the grace and the kind of just the space to look at what is happening in your brain and just know that everything is going to necessarily change in a second. Right. Um, even though like the onset of the pandemic felt like it happened in a second, you know, there is moments that we can, when we're trying to make personal change in our lives, really just know that it is going to be hard and just taking it like one step at a time, which sometimes I hate that phrase, but <laughs> it is one step at a time, one moment at a time. And just like with as much self grace as possible that we can start to move towards like the life we want to have or make the tough decisions and to continue past that point too. the decision-making sometimes is the easiest point, but then we're able to really start to shift and continue to move forward, especially when, you know, shame comes up or, you know, we are feeling like we're in survival mode and just knowing that some of those are, can be temporary states as long as we continue to nurture ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave the listeners with today? I mean, if we had 10 more hours to talk, I would love to keep going on these topics. Weirdly, they're energizing because even talking about them at this level is a way to dismantle the systems that they have, not only for listeners, but for myself, because it's, again, this reinforcement of the process. I think, honestly, the biggest thing for people to take away, I think, is part of the culture that we live in of needing to do something all the time has allowed the possibility for a lot of what I call Band-Aid solutions to be put out on the market here's your quick fix, feel better in five, here's the answer to do this, you know, whatever these easy answers are. And the reason they sell so well is everybody wants to be as productive as possible getting through the things that already feel hard. Again, so going back to this client I mentioned who's really had this pressure to be done grieving in two days after this really hard incident. There is no such thing as a Band-Aid solution for doing any of this kind of work. And so if we come back to, you could decide to quit your job, you could decide to leave a relationship, you could decide to stop being you know, the perfect person, or you're going to let go of all these pressures. If we don't deal with what was actually pushing you to feel like you had to do that in order to be okay underneath everything you're actually doing, it's just going to manifest in a new way. And so... I think just empowering people to sit in some of this and to find people supports that are not offering quick fixes and band-aids, but are giving you the space and empowering you to go deeper, to really think about these systems, these protection mechanisms of the brain in a way that you can feel like you're empowered and able to dismantle them so that you're not chasing the band-aids for the rest of your life. Yeah, that was so beautiful. I love all of that. No more quick fixes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do hard things. No more quick fixes. And you will not be alone in that if you can learn to trust that process. Mm, 
Yes, beautifully put. Um, well, before I last, ask my last question, which I know you know what's coming, um, I'd love for you to tell everyone where they can connect with you further. Well, the irony of this conversation is that one of my shame-based responses was that I had to do it all and be it all in my business. And you were a catalyst in helping me realize that I didn't have to. And so I made a really hard choice that my shame didn't want me to, to leave social media. And it was amazing and empowering. And so really that kind of simplifies where people can find me now heading over to my website. So it's adversityrising.com. And really, I think the best way to stay connected with me is to sign up for my email list and get an email every two weeks with content that I don't share anywhere else, talking about topics like this, sharing some different resources that I have, and really kind of focusing on building that sense of community and self-exploration through that process. And there's a link to that right on my website. I can also send you a link to put in the show notes. But I would say the best thing for people if they want to reach out and connect is to simply email me just to check in and say, hey, this is what's coming up for me. I would love to do this. This is where I'd like to go next or where kind of those next steps by putting it out there and allowing somebody else to be a part of your journey. You're already building that sense of support and empowerment to kind of go down this route and again, do hard things without quick fixes. Yes. Wonderful. I'll put all of that in the show notes. And yes, Kira's emails are some of the best emails I ever received. <laughs> They're always so timely and full of such valuable content. So I highly recommend it. And for anyone listening that was just like, wait a second, did Charlotte as a marketer tell her it's okay not to be on social media? <laughs> and yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it is always okay to not be on social media and to just put your energy and your resources where it's going to make sense for you and your business. And that doesn't always mean social media. Yeah. And, and I know, again, we could go on this for 10 more hours, but one of the biggest things I think that you said to me that was so helpful and why, because of your professional experience, but also the friendship we've built is to realize sometimes we do things because we think we're supposed to, rather than seeing how do the systems work for me and how does my message and my value come through in these systems. And that was something that we were able to figure out and realize hey, that's not the best way that I can reach people. And there are ways that I get really excited that I can market myself. I can market this work, but I'm using sort of the, the tools of social media and putting myself there. And it almost in a weird way becomes an avoidance strategy of doing the ways, doing things the way that I want to and plays into my fear of starting to really grow myself and living, doing my business the way I want versus the way I think I should. And so that freedom... Mm -hmm you gave me to think about it that way, I've been able to shift into marketing that fits for me, that doesn't feel like it's energy draining, but energy reinvigorating. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I feel like social media can be very draining, especially if you feel like you should be doing it because everyone's doing it and posting. And, you know, it can be really effective with the right strategy and the right bandwidth, right. but it's also very time consuming. And so, yes, I love that you were able to kind of tie that to the values and kind of, you know, there were lots of ways that we marketed before social media existed and some of those channels can still be really effective. Absolutely. So my last question for you, and I'll have to go back and listen to the episode from last season to see how it <laughs> shifts or changes, but how does being intentional show up in your life or business? I think that recently 
what I've been trying to work on is mindfulness and presence. So I, as someone who lives with a, an anxiety disorder, and also as I've alerted, I guess, everybody to that perfectionism is something that I used to wear as a badge of honor. I was always kind of existing in the now, in 15 seconds from now, in 10 minutes from now, and also an hour before, six months before, like my brain was being pulled in so many different directions. And I was expending a lot of energy ruminating and perseverating. And so being intentional now for me has been really about developing emotional and body intelligence that connects with my intellect and integrating kind of my mind and my body in a way that I can listen to all of it and be present with it in each moment. And I've learned to really think about, you know, I'm still, I am a parent. And so when I'm with my daughter, I still do have to do the like 15 second ahead thing of, you know, what could happen, what could be the case. But I'm able to just be present with her. And when we're painting, we're painting. I'm not thinking about, I should be working on this thing or what am I going to do when she goes down for her nap or, you know, oh, I didn't do this thing yesterday. I'm just with her and I'm painting and I'm able to be in that moment. And then when I'm doing my work and my business, I'm not thinking about everything I'm doing or not doing as a mom or as a partner or as a a leader in my household. Instead, I'm just present in that moment and I can just allow each aspect of myself to be in that. And again, integrated and present at the same time. Oh, I love that. I think that's so wonderful. And yeah, mindfulness is everything. And I think, you know, there's been lots of studies about multitasking, how that actually isn't effective. Mm -hmm. And I think it is way more draining. And so I love that answer because I think the more we can be mindful and just focus on what's in front of us, we are able to do more that way. Absolutely. Well, Kara, you and I know we could talk for hours, but I really appreciate you being here again. Um, Such great things for people to think about and to give themselves some grace as the world continues to shift and change. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity with you this morning. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to me the first to know when a new episode is available. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on LinkedIn at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out charlottechberfield.com for more resources and to learn more about holistic marketing.